If you brought a copy of the scriptures with you, if you would turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. The last time I, I shared with you, we talked about the kingdom of God and how the kingdom of God is different because the king that rules the kingdom is different. We talked about how he is fair, how he's a fair God. We don't have to worry that someday he's just going to fly off the handle and, and just be mad at us and treat us poorly, but he's a fair God. Not only that, but he's a, a generous God. He's a God that, that gives lavishly. And we talked about the king in the kingdom, and, and next week I want to share how Jesus came as the king of the kingdom. Uh, I don't know about you, I don't know if you've heard or not, but Jesus was born a king. And uh, most people, most kings aren't born that way. They're born as, come on, they're born as princes. And there's a king or a queen or, or another ruler in the kingdom. And then one day, whenever this, this child comes of age, the prince, he will become the king. But kings aren't born. They, are, they inherit a kingdom. But we know that Jesus was born a king. Oh, it's going to be good. I, don't, I, I can't get into it. That's, that's next week. Y'all come next week. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. But today we're talking about, again, the kingdom of God. And last, week, last time as the kingdom of God is different. This week, the kingdom of God is set apart. Is set apart. So we're going to read from 1 Samuel chapter 8, starting in verse 1. It says, As Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons to be judges over Israel. Joel and Abijah, his oldest sons, held court in Beersheba. But they were not like their fathers. Some will say they weren't like them. For they were greedy for money. They accepted bribes and perverted justice. Finally, all of the elders of Israel met at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. Look, they told him, you are now old. I can imagine Samuel said, well, thank you. Samuel, you're old. And your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. And Samuel was displeased with their request. And I could imagine I would be too. They called him old, and they said, your sons are trash. Give us a king. I can imagine if you say that to any elderly gentleman, they'd probably be a little bit displeased too. Samuel was displeased, and he, he takes their request and went to the Lord for guidance. Someone said that's wisdom. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for they are rejecting me, not you. Ouch. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods. And now they are giving you the same treatment, Samuel. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will rule over them. So Samuel passed on the Lord's warning to the people who were asking him for a king. This is how a king will reign over you, Samuel said. The king will draft your sons. Someone say he will draft. He will draft your sons and assign them to his chariots and his charioteers, making them run before his chariots. Some will be generals and captains in his army. Some will be forced to plow in his fields and harvest his crops. And some will make his weapons and chariot equipment. The king will take. Look at your neighbor and say he will take. He will take your daughters from you and force them to cook and bake and make perfumes for him. He will take, some will say he will take. He will take away the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his own officials. Verse 15, he will take, good job, a tenth of your grain and your grape harvest and distribute it among his officers and attendants. He will take your male and female slaves and demand the finest of your cattle and donkeys for his own use. He will demand a tenth of your flocks, and you will be his slaves. And when that day comes, you will beg for relief from this king you are demanding. But then the Lord will not help you. But the people refused to listen to Samuel's warning. Even so, we still want a king, they said. We want to be like the nations around us. Our king will judge us and lead us into battle. So Samuel repeated to the Lord what the people had said, and the Lord replied, Do as they say and give them a king. Then Samuel agreed and sent the people home. Wow. Wow. 
Have you ever wanted something before? Probably, let, let, let's take, let me take you back to your teenage years. If you're a teenager, then pay special attention. You probably want something or wanted something very badly, something you thought you needed, something that looked good, something that was pretty, something that was flashy, something that caught your attention. And, and so you went to your parents, hey, mom and dad, found something I like. Now, mom and dad, this car is nice. You have to understand it's a nice car. Sure, it may be a little powerful. It may not get the best gas mileage. It may take our, our uh, insurance rates phew, way sky high, but it's a nice car. It'll get me around. And you just you have something that you want and you desire, and, and your parents, they, they drop the hammer on your hopes and dreams and crush everything that you wanted in life and say, hey, that, that's not going to happen. Mm-mm. No, not today. <laughs> I, I fa- you, you can have the, the old clunker sitting in the yard that hadn't been driven in a year. Yeah, you know, that one. We, we got a couple things we need to fix on it. You'll have to crawl under it with me and, and help hold some tools and help wrench things here and there. But it'll get you where you need to go. And as a kid, you, just, you feel that just crushing feeling. Just, oh, man, not that. I don't want that car. I, I can imagine that's a little bit about what Israel is, is feeling in this moment. They said, hey, we want a king. Samuel, you're old. Your sons are awful. They don't do anything like you did. I mean, you were pretty good, but you're getting old. Your sons, not so good and not so old, which means we'd have to put up with them for a while. So give us a king instead. We need a king, a king that will judge us and a king that will lead us into battle. That sounds good. Just like all the other nations have, it's going to be great. Samuel, he takes it to the Lord, and the Lord says, hey, you can give him a king, but tell him what it's going to be like. Tell him what it's going to be like. The king will take. Here's point number one if you're taking notes this morning. Anything but Jesus is an image of a king. Anything but Jesus is just an image of a king. See, Israel said, that I want a king. Give us a king. We want a king. We demand a king. Give us our king. We want a king that will judge us and a king that will lead us into battle like all the other nations have. Now, here's the thing about Israel, and this is why I kind of equated them to, to like a child. You know, they, they said they wanted something, but they, they didn't really want those things. They just wanted the image of a king because here's the truth. They said, we want a king that will judge us. Okay, well, uh, if you've got your Bible real quick, just turn back a few pages, uh, maybe, I don't know, four or five pages, and, and tell me what the name of the, the book before 1 Samuel is. The book is named what? Judges. Why is it named Judges? Or Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, yep. Why is it named Judges? Thank you, Cameron. It's named Judges because there were judges in Israel at the time. They said, give us a king that will judge us. Israel, you've already got judges. In fact, we have an entire book called Judges that talks about the judges of Israel as they were judging you. You want a judge? We need a judge. And we need someone who will lead us in the battle. If you're still in 1 Samuel chapter 8, you haven't flipped back to Ruth or Judges, then flip back one chapter in 1 Samuel and go to 1 Samuel chapter 7. Check this out, 1 Samuel 7 verse 10. It says, just as Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines arrived to attack Israel. Oh, no. But, someone say but. The Lord spoke with a mighty voice of thunder from heaven that day, and the Philistines were thrown into such confusion that the Israelites defeated them. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Skip down to verse 13. So the Philistines were subdued and didn't invade Israel again for some time. And throughout Samuel's lifetime, by the way, Samuel was the current judge of Israel. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the Lord's powerful hand was raised against the Philistines. They say, give us a judge. So we'll be like the other nations. Well, Israel, you've already, you already have judges. God would raise up people in, in certain 
moments of crisis for the Israelites. God would raise up men and women to judge Israel, to, to give them the verdict and the word of the Lord, to lead them, to correct them and rebuke them and to guide them in the ways of God. But now they're asking for a king to judge them. God was already their judge, but now they're asking for a king to judge them. And they said, give us someone who will lead us into battle. And, and the very chapter before the one we're reading, we see that God was the one who led them into battle. Not only did he lead them into battle, but God fought their battles for them. Y'all, that's incredible. Just imagine you're on the battlefield. You're a soldier, and the enemy's coming to attack you, and all of a sudden you, you look up in the sky, and clouds start to form, and there's lightning, and then loud crashes of thunder so loud over your enemy that they just start to scatter and flee and think, what in the world is happening right now? Now, this wasn't just, I don't know if you, you guys were awake several nights ago whenever it stormed all night long, and there's lots of loud thunder and lots of lightning and lots of wind. Now, this wasn't that kind of storm. This was a storm that made seasoned soldiers, soldiers that had been in the heat of battle already. They fought all the time. And a thunderstorm comes over their head, and they start running like chickens with their heads cut off. They start fleeing in every direction, just running around screaming, ah! Like, that's the God who's leading us into battle? Okay, sign me up. I, I want to be on that side. That's awesome. I didn't even have to pick up my spear today. It's getting kind of heavy. My arm kind of hurt from throwing it all last week. Anyway, God, you're awesome. You're awesome. But they said that it doesn't matter. We want a king. We want a king that will lead us into battle. And notice their motivation. They said we want a king so that we will be like the other nations, the other nations around us. I love being a youth pastor because I, I get the opportunity to, to teach students from the Word of God, but I also get the opportunity to, to just kind of be just a small part of their lives. And, and they'll come up to me and they'll, you know, tell me stuff that's going on uh, with school or friends or, or relationships or anything. And I love it because at about the age of 15, Every young man will come up to me and tell me about their dream car. And they'll come in and I'll be like, man, I'm, there's this Dodge Charger, super turbo, turbo, extra P3S, P90X, you know, super turbo. And it's got this, this stuff that makes it big and loud and fast and and I'm like, hey, listen, dude, I am not a mechanic. I'm a pastor. I don't know anything about cars. You can tell me about your engine size all day. That means nothing to me. I don't know anything about that. I mean, like, I, if I have to repair something on my vehicle, I go straight to YouTube. And I'm like, you know, change a fuel filter. Okay, well, you know, how do I do that? I don't even know where it is. You know, just I'll get under there, the YouTube, and be like, man, they make this look so easy, you know. And they'll be like, hey, this is my dream car. It's great. It's awesome. And I'm like, dude, don't get it. Why not? Well, first of all, you don't have a job. How are you going to afford gas? You're, about to, you're getting ready in a couple years to go off to college. That is not going to be a practical vehicle for you. And I probably sound just like their parents at home. Sorry, y'all, if I do. But I'm like, man, whenever I buy a vehicle, I buy something that will be practical for me. A couple of few years back, I bought a Jeep Wrangler. And everyone's like, oh, gee, nice Jeep, man. That's great. You're going to get it lifted? Are you going to put some big old tires on it? I was like, no. I just bought a Jeep because I, like I like to camp. I like to go backpacking. I, like, I, like to, I enjoy hunting. And it's a practical vehicle for me. I mean, it's it's. The things I like to do, the things I enjoy doing, I can do, you know, great in a Jeep. You know, I sold my, my pickup truck and, and got the Jeep. And, and they're all asking me about, you know, lift kits and all this. I'm just like, no, that doesn't mean anything to me. It serves my purposes just fine the way it is. And it probably gets a lot better gas mileage that way too. But I, I love those, those conversations that I get to have with them because I remind them that the things that you're looking at and desiring right now, it's just an image. 
Like, it might be fun to have a fast car with a lot of power, sure, but is the real reason you want it is so that people will be impressed with you? Is the real reason that you desire those things is, is so that you can, you can pull up in the school parking lot and park in your spot and everyone's going to be like, oh, man, look, it just showed up. That thing is sick. Nice. Or is that actually going to serve some practical purposes in your life? And I think a lot of times we as Christians, we, we kind of treat God the same way. We, we want a God that, that's, that's powerful and does these things, but if he doesn't look or act just like we think that he should, we, we start to kind of push him to the side and say, I, I want this over here instead. It looks better. It looks the way I think this should look in my life. Someone say, any other king is just an image of a king. Any other king is just an image of a king. Here's the truth. We have a king in this kingdom that we are living in right now that really does have the power and the authority. He's not just an image of a king, but he holds all authority. And I don't want to get ahead of myself because in a couple of weeks I want to share about the authority of the king. And, oh, it's so good. But he possesses all authority authority. And he calls us to be set apart from the world. In the kingdom of God, we should be set apart. There's a word that, that's uh, in the Bible. You'll see it over and over in the Bible. We don't use it a whole lot these days, but it's holy. The word holy. We just, we sang about it. holy, holy, holy. Sorry, I can't sing, y'all. Holy. Holy means to be set apart. And God's idea for us is that we be set apart, not that we look alike, but that we be set apart. His idea for us is that we look different. You know, the statistics say that one in three people are weird. So real quick, right where you're at, just kind of look around, look around you. Now, here's the thing. If the people around you look normal then you may be that one. <laughs> but God calls us to look different, to be different, to be set apart for his glory. Because if we're just trying to fit in, if we're just trying to keep up with the Joneses, then we're going to end up serving a king that takes we're going to end up having to sacrifice a lot. First Peter chapter 1, verse 14 says, You must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better back then. But now you must be holy in everything. God, you said I got to be holy in everything? Does that mean everything? You want me to be set apart in everything I do? You must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say you must be holy because I am holy. There'll be people say, well, it's impossible to be holy. You can't be like God. You, you, what, you know, it's, it's impossible to be like, you can't be holy. God is holy. You can't be holy. That's impossible. Possible. That's an impossible standard. Can I? Can we just speak logically this morning? Would God command us to do something if we could not do it? No. Let me answer it for you. No, He would not. But this idea of this this word holy, we get this idea in our culture today that holy is like just reserved for God, like somewhere way up in the cosmos, there is a God who is holy, and you dare not get near God because you will die. And listen, here's God's invitation. He says, hey, I want you to be holy because I am holy. He's not saying, we, we got this idea that holiness is just moral purity. And that's not what the word means at all. It means to be set apart. And of course, morals have a, a place in being set apart. But I love that God, he doesn't, he's not holy and he doesn't build this wall around his holiness and say, I, I, you dare not enter. You dare not come close to a holy God. Instead, 
He says, hey, I'm a little bit different, and I want you to be a little bit different with me. I want you to be set apart with me. I want you to look different with me. Someone say, he is good. Have you ever heard the, the old saying, great minds think alike? Usually what happens, you'll be in a conversation with someone, and, and you'll both say the same thing at the same time. You'll be like, ah, great minds think alike. And you, you kind of puff yourself up. Yeah, I'm smart. I am intellectually superior to all the rest of you peasants. Great minds think alike. Well, did you know the, the phrase, great minds think alike, is only half of the original saying. Do you know that? The original saying is, great minds think alike, though fools seldom differ. And so whenever you start saying great minds think alike, you're actually referring to a, a broader quote that used in its, in its original context is saying, you're stupid. Because you think alike, you think you're smart. No, great minds think alike, but fools seldom differ. All fools think the same. All fools have the same idea, the same mindset, the same attitude. And I love Jesus. He's saying, hey, if you want to be a fool, just, just be like everyone else. But if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you're going to have to be set apart. You're going to have to be set apart. Hmm. Church, we can't trust in the things of this world to fix our problems. We can't trust in the things of this world to, to meet our needs. We need to put our eyes on Jesus, the King of Kings. Some will say the King of Kings. King of Kings. If you're dependent on money to satisfy your longings, then you'll look just like the rest of the world. If you're depending on your status or the opinions of others to elevate you above your problems, you're going to look just like the rest of the world. If you're depending on, on re human relationships to help satisfy your longings and desires, you're going to look just like the rest of the world. But church, we've got to start setting our eyes on Jesus. We've got to set ourselves apart from the world because any other king in our lives is just an image, just an image but the real power and authority is in Jesus. Write this down, point number two. Anything but Jesus is truly useless. Truly useless. Oh, this is good. This is good. Samuel, he brings the demands to God, and, and God allows them to have a king. So God, they, they still want a king. God says, well, go ahead and give them a king, but warn them what this king is going to do. He's going to take your sons. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to take your land. He's going to take your livestock. He's going to take your crops. He's going to take your time. He's going to take your efforts. He's going to take your money. He's going to take it all, and you will be his slave. This is a warning that, that God gives to the people of Israel. He's saying, hey, before you buy into this, I want you to know what this king is going to require of you. He's going to take. He's going to take. He's going to take. I asked you earlier if you'd ever wanted something so badly as a teenager. Now, think about your adult life. Have you ever wanted something so badly that you hyped yourself up about it? You got really excited about making that purchase. And you go in and you seal the deal, and you got this nice new car or new house or, or new land or, or new opportunity in front of you, and you're excited about it for a moment, but then a few days later, all of a sudden, you got that feeling that, oh, man, ah, I don't know if that was the right choice. I may have made a mistake. That is what is called, does anybody know? What is that called? Buyer's remorse. Buyer's remorse. You put your money into something and you got it. You thought it would be great, but you probably didn't look at the downsides of it long enough because once you got into it, now you've got remorse. You've got regret. Buyer's remorse. It's a sense of regret that you have after you've made a purchase. And many times, buyer's remorse, remorse comes whenever you spend large amounts of money or time or effort, and, and then you question, did I really need this? Did I really need it? 
Now, buyer's remorse doesn't normally happen whenever you are forced to pay something, like if you've got a medical bill or you want to keep the electricity on. You don't typically have buyer's remorse when you pay those types of bills. You may complain about it a little bit. I've already heard complaints over the last month of people saying, my electricity bill is sky high. I haven't even used my, my, my I was talking to my mother-in-law a few days ago, and, and we were talking about how we had talked to people and saying they hadn't even used their, you know, their heater or their air over this last month, and their electricity bill went up. How does that happen? I don't know. I'm not an economist. But I know I don't feel buyer's remorse when I pay my utility bill because it's something I'm forced to do. When I get buyer's remorse, it's because I bought something that I may not have needed, and I feel sorry about it later. And buyer's remorse is such a big deal, and it's so common that retailers have had to, to start finding ways to keep people from experiencing buyer's remorse. Now, all the ladies in the room, if, if, you've, if you've gone shopping, some of my guys too, if you go shopping and you, you go buy clothes, you know what happens a lot of times after, after you go up to the cash register and you pay for clothes, what happens after the transaction is they give you some coupons. Get $20 off of $100 on your next purchase. Good December 26th through January 1st. And you're like, can I use these right now? Can, can I return the things I just paid for and use these? No, it's not good until December 26th through January 1st. $20 off your next purchase of $100 or more. And you're like, why? I don't know a whole lot about business, but I can imagine if I could get $20 off of $100 in a couple of weeks, why can't you let me do it now? I mean, just give it to me now. I'd be happy then. There's a reason why they don't. It's because they want you to spend more money. But also they do that so you won't feel bad about the purchase you just made because, hey, I can come back in two weeks and save $20 if I spend $100 or more. Good December 26th through January 1st. You see, they, they've come up with ways and methods to keep you from having buyer's remorse because what they've done is they've given you an image They've said, hey, the things you just bought, you might feel like you got taken to the bank right now, <laughs> but in two weeks you're going to be happy because you get $20 off $100 or more on your next purchase. Good December 26th and January 1st. What they're doing is they're trying to say, hey, what you just purchased has more value than you think it does. Don't feel bad about it. Come back and buy more. Here's the thing. Most of the time... That coupon will expire before you use it. How many of y'all, raise your hand if, if you're the sucker that ever took coupons. Like, I'm going to go back. I'm going to get some more. And, and then you look in your, your purse or your wallet like a month later, and you're like, oh, man, it's January 2nd. Dag nabbit. They got you. They tried to sell you something that had lesser value, and they wanted you to still feel all right about it. See, buyer's remorse is something that we have when, whenever we give a great deal for something that's not that valuable or something that we didn't need. No one feels bad about making a good investment and getting lots and lots of return on investment. No one feels bad about that. You only feel bad if you ever feel like you've lost something. And so God, I love it in his mercy and his kindness. He says, go back to the people of Israel. Tell them what this king will demand of you. Don't get into that, that moment of buyer's remorse. Because if you buy into this king, he's going to take, 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 and you will be his slave. In contrast, Jesus, the king of kings, Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, tells us that he came not to be served, ooh, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Wow. Talking about kings, you, you got a couple of options in front of you. Are you, are you going to take King Saul or are you going to take King Jesus, the one who doesn't come to be served but the one who comes to serve? The one that's not going to take, 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 and you will be my slave, but the one who's going to give his life as a ransom for your heart. Wow. Wow. 
Church, we've got to learn to be more wise. But here's the thing. A lot of people will claim to be a Christian but still serve other kings. They want the benefits that come with Jesus, but they also want to have their own idea and their own image of what a king should be like. But can I tell you, anything but Jesus as your king is truly useless. Truly useless. Have you ever been in a conversation with an unbeliever that has said, I don't know, I don't know if I want to be a Christian because you guys spend an entire day out of your week where you, you, you give money, you give your offering, your tithes, and, and pff, you're no better off than I am. You don't have anything that I don't. I don't know if you've ever been in a conversation like that. I've heard that from a few people, and it hurt me. I'm like, wait a second. Yes, I do. But then I look at my life and I evaluate my life, and I'm like, oh, wait a second. Maybe I don't. Maybe I am just like them. I've still got the same struggles. I've still got the, the, the same problems. I've still got issues, and, and things aren't always clear. They're kind of confusing sometimes, and, and I, you know, I, don't know what, I don't know who to serve. I don't know if you've ever felt like that before, but can, let me just say this. The unbeliever has a fantastic argument. Why would they want to give up their livelihood, their lifestyle? Why would they want to give up their addictions or, or, their, or their, uh, their preferences for a king that doesn't have any power or authority? In fact, because if the king did have power or authority, you would be following him like he had power or authority, by the way. Amen. Can someone say amen? In fact, Paul wrote about the same thing in 1 Corinthians. He writes a letter to a church in Corinth who was preaching some pretty twisted stuff. The church in Corinth was preaching that Jesus didn't truly raise from the dead. And so Paul writes a letter to them to correct and rebuke them. And he basically, well, this is what he says. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 16 through 19, it says, And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless, and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone else in the world. Wow. Wow. Paul tells them, hey, listen, if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, in other words, if you do not believe in the authority that Jesus as king possesses, then not only is what you are doing useless, but the world should pity you because you're claiming to serve a God that has no power. And I love that Paul, he says this, hey, listen, he's talking to the world, hey, listen, world, if you look in us Christians and you see that there's no power, that there's no authority, that the king that we're serving has nothing going on, then, hey, go, go your own way. Do your own thing for sure. Absolutely. In fact, uh, verse 20, it says, but in fact, uh, or I'm sorry, not verse uh, 20, verse 32. Paul says, and what value was there in fighting the wild beasts, those people of Ephesus, if there will be no resurrection from the dead? And if there is no resurrection, let's all feast and drink for tomorrow we die. In other words, if God as king has no power or authority in his, in, in his life, then we just go drink. Just have a good time. Just, just be you, do yourself, and then we'll die, and then there will be nothing else. But I love verse 20. Paul says, in fact, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. And then in verse 34, he says, think carefully about what is right and stop sinning. For to your shame, I say that some of you don't know God at all. Y'all, he's talking to a church. A church. He's like, you're preaching some messed up stuff. You're telling your people that God does not have the authority to raise the dead. If God ha does not have the authority to raise the dead, then what you are doing is useless. Your faith is useless. The things you spend your time and your effort and your money on is useless. Just go have fun and drink and die. But here's the thing, church. God does have power. He does have authority. 
He is the king of kings. If there's any other king in your life, it's useless. Just drink, be merry, and die. But we don't serve that king. We serve the king of kings who has all authority, who has all power. He is, in fact, different. He's not useless. He's not dead. He's not boring. He's not just out of his mind somewhere, a crazy man up in the corner of heaven. He is the living God. Mighty to save, mighty to deliver, can heal disease, can raise the dead, can cure cancer. This is our God, the God that we serve. So Paul's rebuke to them is like, hey, if what I'm saying is true about God, then you better start thinking long and hard (laughs) about what you're teaching. You better start thinking about your life. You better get yourself right because our God is a mighty God. And I would, I would be safe to say you don't even know God if you don't know his power or authority. Wow. I believe that's why a lot of unbelievers don't have any interest in being a Christian is because they see Christians, people that claim to be Christians, that have no power or authority in their life. They don't have any faith in their life. Because we come to church and we'll worship Jesus. We'll sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is come. And then we'll go home and we'll serve our money. We'll go home and serve our interests. We'll go home and serve our egos. We'll go home and, and serve our, our, our jobs. We'll go home and, and, and serve our comforts and our pleasures and our preferences. And, and in our life, we don't look any different than the non-believer. Church, can I encourage you today? Stop that! Let me give you some, some gentle encouragement today. Quit it! We serve a good God who is mighty. We should start living like it. We should start walking around with our chest held a little bit higher with our chin up, saying, hey, I serve a God. I may not know why I'm going through this same struggle that the unbeliever is, but I know that my God is mighty, and I'm going to choose to put my faith in him, not some other useless king, not some other thing, not money, not possessions, not material things, not my own ego, but I'm going to serve the king of kings. Serve the king of kings. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12 says, There is a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death. Church, if we serve any other king, then we know what our future is going to be. It may seem right to you to depend on money or resources or things or people. But in the end, if that's what we're serving, we're going to end up just like the rest of the world. But as Christians, we've got to say, I believe in Jesus. I believe in him so much, I would stake my life on him a thousand times. He is the king of kings. Here's the last point. Point number three, anything but Jesus is just the king of your choosing. It's just the king of your choosing. Israel demanded, they, they wanted a national king. Growing up in the church, I'd always heard of this story where Israel comes to Samuel and they demand a king. And I've always heard that, that they did the wrong thing. But did you know they actually didn't do the wrong thing? They just did it with the wrong motive. Because 400 years earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14, notice what, notice what God says, Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. This is 400 years before the story we read in 1 Samuel. He says, you are about to enter the land the Lord your God is giving you. When you take it over and settle there, you may think, We should select a king to rule over us like the other nations around us. If this happens, be sure to select this king, the man the Lord your God chooses. You must appoint a fellow Israelite. He may not be a foreigner. 
This king must not build up a large stable of horses for himself or send his people to Egypt to buy horses, for the Lord has told you, you must never return to Egypt. This king must not take many wives for himself because they will turn his heart away from the Lord, and he must not accumulate large amounts of wealth in silver or gold for himself. And when he sits on the throne as king, he must copy for himself this body of instruction on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. He must always keep that copy with him and read it daily as long as he lives. That way he will learn to fear the Lord his God by obeying all the terms of these instructions and decrees. This regular reading will prevent him from becoming proud and acting as if he is above his fellow citizens. It will also prevent him from turning away from these commands in the smallest way. And it will ensure that his, he, and his gen, he and his descendants will reign for many generations in Israel. Notice this. God permitted Israel to have a king. So 400 years later, they come to Samuel and they say, Samuel, we want a king. Notice God does not say no. He says, he doesn't say no. He doesn't say yes. He says, okay, okay. If that's what they want, if that's what they choose, if that's what they desire, can I, can I give you a strong warning? This may step on your toes a little bit. But some of the prayers you're praying, God may answer, and you may regret it later. <laughs> Sometimes God gives us the things that we ask for knowing that we're going to be hurting ourselves. I've got two sons, one is six and one is two. And every now and then, like, you know, I'm the dad. I'm like, hey, you know, don't, don't jump from couch to couch or, you know, whatever. I don't want you to get hurt. Or, you know, don't touch that electric fence or that, you know, hot stove. Or, you know, don't stand behind a horse. You know, the, the, the typical things that keep your child from dying, right? I will tell them these things. But sometimes I will notice them doing something foolish that they know better. They know that they shouldn't be doing it. They know better. And I'll just watch them, and I will allow them to do something that will help them be like, oh, I should not have done that. I don't know. Maybe you think that's bad parenting. I don't know. Sometimes I'm like, hey, go, go ahead. <laughs> Let him fall off the couch. <laughs> It'll be all right. <laughs> He's got a hard head. He'll be fine. <laughs> He's got that wisdom head. They're big and hard. He'll be just fine. Just let him fall. Sometimes God will let you do things. He will allow you to do things that may end up hurting you. But I love this. In this particular case, God tells them, you can have a king. You may think that you want a king, and when that day comes, you can have a king. But make sure that he doesn't have too many horses, right? That's what you want for your kids, right? You don't want them to have too many horses. Amen. So be like, what? So don't let the king have too many horses. Don't let him have too many wives. Don't let him have too much silver or gold. Why? Because those things would make that person self-absorbed. Those things would make that person selfish and insecure. He says any king in Israel should not have these things. And I think about Solomon it tells us all the chariots and horses and stables and barns he built in the ad. Talks about all of his wives. 700 wives. What? I don't even know how. Talks about all these things. Solomon had all this, this wealth and silver. He broke every one of the rules that, that God gave him. But later in Matthew, Jesus is talking with the Pharisees, and, and he says, he, he tells them, says the queen of Sheba would be disgusted at you right now. She traveled all this way to see Solomon and all of his wisdom and to learn from him. And someone greater than Solomon, oh, come on, church. A king greater than Solomon is here, and you refuse to believe in him. Wow. Jesus didn't have horses or silver or gold or wise, but he tells them Solomon in all his splendor is nothing compared to who's standing in front of you right now. 
So the king that you choose will be the king of your choosing. But I want you to know that there is a better option. He says, you're allowed to have a king, but there is a better option. Notice in 1 Samuel chapter 8, he said, the people aren't rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. They don't want me as their king any longer. Can you imagine God's heart in that moment? They don't want me as their king any longer. But he still gives them the choice because we serve a God that loves us. He will never force you to choose him. But let me tell you the truth today. If you have never accepted Jesus as your Savior, you have a choice. And the choice is no one else's but yours. He gave Israel the choice. It's your choice. Your choice. You can choose to accept it or you can choose to reject it. And that same choice is available to us today. And you may say, hey, Sam, I've been a Christian for a long time. That, you know, I, I think you're speaking to the people in the room that maybe don't know Jesus. Listen, I'm talking to you too. Because how many areas of, oh, this is about to step on your toes. <laughs> you're not going to like it. How many areas of your life do you have where you're not living in submission to God? How many areas of your life are you dependent on your money or your wealth or your education to get you through, to get you over this hump, and you haven't submitted, you haven't come under the authority of God in that area of your life? Listen, you may have told Jesus, hey, I want to give you my heart, but how many of you said, hey, God, I want to give you my bank account? How many of you said, God, I want to give you my children? God, I want to give you my marriage? God, I want to give you my resources. God, I want to, it's all yours. Take it and do with it as you want to. Just show me. Just tell me. Just, just move on my heart, and I will do whatever you. Come on, y'all. We need to be a people that learn to live in submission of God. Because if you're not living in submission to God in every area of your life, then he may be the king over this over here, but he may not be the king over that. And the choice is yours. Which king Will you choose? Which king will you choose? The people of Israel were self-absorbed, so whenever they demanded a king to represent them, God gave them a self-absorbed king. The first king was Saul, a very selfish man, a man that demanded the people would serve him. He'll give you what you ask for, church. He's, he's just that good. We just got to change our hearts and ask for the right things. Amen. Someone say amen. Amen. And many generations later, as we're closing up, many generations later, as Israel is conquered by Rome and they're placed under extreme taxation and oppressive laws, at that moment, Israel's king is a Jewish man named Herod the Great. Herod the Great, a cruel man, very cruel. He's the king over Israel, but Israel had been conquered by Rome, but the Roman Empire recognized Herod as Israel's king and leader, and so he was a a king that sympathized with Rome, and he agreed with Rome, and he ruled as if he was a, a Roman ruler making the people of God, making the the Israelites' lives terrible. And they would have to live with this king. But one day, King Herod, he's sitting in his palace, and a group of men show up, distinguished gentlemen, nicely dressed, very wealthy, large entourage. They, They come up into his palace And they're speaking to King Herod, the king of the Jews, and notice what they say. Where is the newborn king of the Jews? They come to worship this newborn king. Next week we're going to talk a little bit about Herod and this newborn king. Because in this moment, Herod, as the great ruler His world is shattered when a great group of men, distinguished and wealthy, come to him asking him where the new king is. It changes the course of all human history on that day. My life was changed on that day 
And I'm not that old. <laughs> but your life was changed on that day too. Your life was changed on that day too. God, we thank you for who you are. God, that you are the king above all kings. That there is no ruler, that there is no thing, that there is no object, that there is no person that can even come close to taking your place. God, I pray that we wouldn't be a people that would just be uh, entertained by images of authority or power, God. But I pray that we would be a people that would pursue the king of kings. God, I pray that we wouldn't, we wouldn't bow down to useless things in our lives, God, but that we would recognize you and to submit ourselves to your kingship, God. And Lord, we thank you that you're a good God and that you've given us the choice. And Lord, today, I, I pray that if there's anyone in here who has not chosen you as their king, God, that you would just speak to their heart in this moment and, and even tonight as they're sleeping, God, that you would just speak to their heart, that you would move in them so that they would know you and give their life to you, Jesus. And as we're just in this moment right here, I just want you to ask yourself this question. Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me today? What are you saying to me in this moment? Because maybe there's an area of your life that you haven't submitted to Jesus, or maybe there's still kings in your life that, that have produced only pain and suffering. Maybe you've chosen kings that don't reflect the heart of God. I want to encourage you this week. This is your practical take-home thing this week. I want to encourage you this week to one morning just get by yourself and examine your life, the, the areas of your life that are, are painful and unproductive, and write those down with a real pen and real paper and say, God, how can I submit this area of my life to you as my king? God, I thank you that you're a good God. And that from every angle that we view you from, God, you are holy, holy, holy. You are so wonderful to us. In Jesus' name, someone say amen. Amen. Here's the great promise from God as we're dismissing to go eat. It's in James chapter 4, verse 7. It says, therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come on. If there's pain or, or trouble in your life, Take that to God, submit it to God, and resist the enemy, and there will be freedom in your